Pan Pacific was kind of the epicenter of all of Expo. Like everybody who was anybody stayed there. The Sultan of Brunei, Margaret Thatcher, Dennis Thatcher, Mulrooney, all the dignitaries. I did the Nakasone Bennett Summit. There was one Canadian, which was me, and one Japanese guy that did the Japanese side. So we did rehearsed for two days and did all that. I served Princess Di, Prince Charles. It was crazy. It was a crazy period of time. And because of my who I was or what I was trained to do, I did all those head tables. You know, you can't make mistakes, right? You're serving Mulrooney and he's looking at you with hawk eyes and like you have to be perfect. You can't talk too much. You have to, you know, serve the wine with one finger. Like you just have to do everything. You can't drop wine on the table. <laughs> like you just can't make mistakes. So it's easy to dumb it down, I think. So I was lucky my start in the service industry was kind of emphatic. That's Curtis Riddell, and this is The Stories That Brought You Here, a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and it's my pleasure to get to sit down with people to hear the pivotal and life-changing stories in their lives that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. As a young boy growing up in Alberta, Curtis had his first working experience at his mom's health food store. As he entered his teens, he began working in the restaurant industry, and years of amazing experiences would follow. By his mid-twenties, he decided to shift gears and began selling commercial real estate in Vancouver. This career path took on various forms for nearly two decades, until he sought a change in his life and moved to Pender Island. It was there he opened the resort Woods on Pender. It is so interesting to me how people eventually wind up where they are, and all the things that had to happen along the way in order to turn that into a reality. How did Curtis go from working at his mom's health food store to owning and operating a resort? Well, you're going to find out in this interview, and it is truly fascinating. That's coming up very shortly, but before we get started, there's something I'd like to share with you, and it's a service I'm providing to help people record their oral history. Through doing this podcast over the years and talking to numerous people, I found that the idea of recording a family member's history is something a lot of people think about, but very few actually act on it. I truly believe that everyone has stories worth preserving and wisdoms to share. So I've created an easy way for people to record a high-quality and comprehensive audio memoir for family and future generations to cherish. The process begins with preliminary interviews to become acquainted with you and your stories. Then using professional recording equipment comes the recording phase. And to finish it off comes some creative editing techniques to bring out the best of you and your storytelling. The final recording is all in your own voice, and it is an amazing opportunity for your descendants to get a true understanding of who you actually are, but also functions as a set of footprints for family to follow. The lessons you've learned along the way, personal reflections, life experiences, and family history. These recordings can be as long as you would like, and I'm here to help. If you would like to know more about this, you can email me at myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. That's all one word, my audio memoir at outlook.com. So thank you very much for listening to that. And now a little bit of music and then my interview with Curtis Riddell. Curtis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks. For sure. So uh, I always love giving context to what's going on for the listener. So today it's uh, mid-February. It's kind of first thing in the morning, about 1030. How has your day been so far? It's great. Yeah, lots of moving parts. 
prepping for March 1st reopening. So lots of roofers, excavators, deck builders, all kinds of moving parts. Got nine, eight more working days till reopening. Okay. Are you going to get it done? Oh, yeah. It'll be a scramble, but it always is. Yeah. What time did you start with people coming to the site this morning? Uh, Nine o'clock. Got an RV guy, roofers arrived, excavators, two construction guys all working and a cooling guy coming in the afternoon and a moss remover roof guy coming in the afternoon as well. So yeah, eight more days countdown. Okay. And then it starts the, yeah. the season, the season yeah. of guests coming to, to the woods. Uh, okay. Well, let's jump into the first traditional question that this podcast is about. And that is what brought you to Pender Island? So I, I think it was beginning of 2014. I started thinking in Vancouver, I'd spent 25 years doing commercial real estate deals, retail rollouts, kind of got bored, like 13, 14, started thinking about transition. It was just too easy and wanted a challenge and wanted to kind of replace my day job with a project that included real estate, but also an active business that I could operate with a real estate context. So first I was looking at mini storage facilities and I was with my family in Texas in this was April, May of 2014. They were building some mini storage facilities. So I booked myself into a New York conference and mini storage. And I sort of looked into that and I thought this is really boring. And I'd grown up in the hotel business and was in it intensely, you know, for my first like 14 years old till about 20, 23 years old. Um, so then I just gravitated to looking for resort projects started in North America and then narrowed it down to British Columbia. And then I looked all over BC. I looked in the Columbia Valley, spent five weeks looking at the Fairmont Hot Springs Resort, which was a huge project, decided to move on from that. And then I started focusing on, uh, you know, Tofino, Gulf Islands, um, and and then eventually uh, started looking at properties. So probably June, July, July uh, 2014, I flew to Pender. I looked at Browning, I looked at the woods, the inn on Pender, looked at a bunch of houses. Uh, it was a day trip, so I flew in, looked at a bunch of property, flew back to Vancouver. Next weekend, I looked at Salt Springs. I started kind of narrowing it down a little bit more onto the Gulf Islands after looking at pretty much everywhere in BC. This particular property stuck in my head, woods on Pender, and actually Within weeks, Woods on Pender was already in my vocabulary, ironically, after seeing it. It was just, it looked like a campsite. Salt Spring was the next week, and I looked at everything for sale on Salt Spring. Everything just seemed busy and expensive. And then over the course of the next few months, kept coming back to in on Pender, and it started negotiating. And I think by December of 14, I had a deal in place the dryers. And then I literally all happened really quickly. Uh, I sold my condo, closed on December 29th, January 1st, moved to Pender, <laughs> rented a house and April 8th of 2015 closed and had the whole thing open by June, July. I think the restaurant opened June 6th. So it all happened really quickly. The concept, I did a video of Woods on Pender with the glamping and kind of an ace hotel vibe 
almost within weeks of seeing the property, which I started showing to my family who, and my friends who thought it was crazy <laughs> that I would leave the city and move to the country. But it's kind of weird that like literally within weeks of flying here and looking at this property, it stuck in my head and I had done the video and Woods on Pender was kind of a reality. And Coffee Kitchen, I was involved in a coffee chain in Vancouver as an owner. So I coffee was always a component. I was, you know, I have always been drawn to food and beverage. So the restaurant component of this project was appealing. I'd looked at lots of other projects where there was no food and beverage. It was just cabins or whatever. But the vision was almost immediate. I had a project in Vancouver in Chinatown, and we had a parking lot that kind of wrapped around the project, and we had a rooftop that was never used. So it was non-income producing. Nobody parked there. Um, and so the Airstream idea came from that in about 2012, 13, when we bought it. I had come up with a, an idea from the Granddaddy Hotel in South Africa. They did an Airstream hotel on top of a hotel. And it sort of stuck in my head. So I researched, talked to a bunch of Airstream architects. That was back in 12, 13. So that was kind of in my head when I looked at this property. And it was always a part of it. But initially, I was going to build 10 cabins with five Airstreams. So the Airstreams are going to be one component. Uh, I was going to build out the whole property, the whole Woods on Pender property immediately. And then I couldn't get financing so the whole thing, so the cabin idea was nixed. And then the Airstream, I, I went and bought them. So by January, February of 2015, I had six Airstreams <laughs> sitting on the parking lot. Hadn't closed yet. Hadn't got the deal. I still had conditions. I still hadn't got financing. But I went ahead and bought them. Um, so very risky, but had the vision. And then we went all the way down to, I guess it was Friday, Closing was on Tuesday, which was like April 2nd or something. Friday, 3.30, coming out of a car wash in Victoria, the bank called me and said, we're not doing the deal, and I'm closing on Tuesday. Well, so my lawyer had the closing documents. Everything was lined up. And then, uh, so I literally had no financing. <laughs> I'm closing on Tuesday. So I, um, made the, I made a call to my family, which I would never have done, and we did a one week extension and wound up internally financing it and closing. So that's, so the cabins were nixed. I just did the Airstreams. Um, and then we did the restaurant reno, started fixing up the motel and we closed April 8th, I guess one week late. That was kind of the start of it all. That's how I came to Pender. So I didn't come to Pender intentionally. I just came here because of that. Pro so I was wanting to do a project and this was the only one in the province that made sense. And, so why why did Pender specifically make sense exactly? The deal. So it was just like, I'm a real estate guy. So almost all the resorts that I looked at across the province were based, the you know, the pricing was based on a business, of a resort business. Mm -hmm. They were overpriced from a platform point of view. So the actual underlying land was double what it should be. Okay. So if the resort fails, you're basically stuck with an overpriced resort property and then having to sell it. So this was the only one that made sense as a real estate deal. So it was cheap enough and manageable enough that even with this adversity of not getting financing, having to internally finance it, scramble around at the last minute, I was still able to close it. Yeah. 
So that's interesting because the uh, you, your place is known for the airstreams, but it sounds like that it was almost accidental that that the airstreams became such a pivotal component of it because of the financing issue. Yeah, initially it was going to be sort of more ace hotelish. There was going to be ten modern, two hundred and forty square foot black cabins with a cantilevered front uh, porch with a hammock hanging and a mom fireplace. Very crisp, modern kind of like my bunky cabins that we have today. Okay. They were but they were going to be actual cabins, so 240 square feet, very specifically designed, built in North Vancouver, barged over that whole plan. I mean, we went all the way down to like spending I spent 30 or 40,000 dollars on drawings and lining up the, you know, having people come over, we surveyed the property with all the cabins in place. So the whole project was based on 10 modern cabins and five airstreams. Okay. So we did the whole site plan with everything lined up all the way through to drawing up a septic plan, power plan, like everything was all laid out all over the, with the topography. We literally like walked the site, measured it, sprayed yellow, uh, you know, red paint on the ground to kind of map out all these cabins and airstreams. And then it just didn't happen. Like Friday, 3.30, that plan's out the window new plans in place by the following week internally financed. So I, I mean, my family was able to give me the mortgage that I was looking to the bank to, and also the quickness, the timing of it, you know, closing in April, opening in the summer, I would never have been able to do, I wouldn't have been able to do a development permit and do all of that stuff and have it in place for that season. Airstreams didn't require a permit, a development permit or a building permit. So I was able to get it done quicker yeah i love how you're talking about the uh the ins and outs of this experience and like there's there's a lot of uh struggle and walls being put up right and then having to adjust on the fly right and so as you're adjusting on the fly and it looks like you're moving towards the airstream side of things how did that wind up uh evolving as uh, into what it is now right because starting off with a small amount of airstreams what did you find from the uh the response from your clientele about that I mean, that I had already bought six Airstreams by January, February. So that portion was always in play. Mm-hmm. It was just going to have 10 cabins in addition to the six Airstreams. So it just, it was a smaller lodging platform than I had originally planned. A little bit less focus, a little bit. And, and then the restaurant opened and it was a big focus. So it got really busy really quickly. We kind of opened like six days a week, long hours. So really, by the time I opened, it was really all about the restaurant for that first season up until probably September, October. That was kind of my almost 100% focus. We got kind of the five Airstreams in place. One of them is a project. It was needed to get renovated. So the five were in place, plus the three cabins and the motel and the restaurant were in place when we opened. And then it just, that was the start of it. Um, Literally flying by the seat of our pants. The, The whole thing happened within two months, right? The restaurant we closed on April 8th and the restaurant opened June 6th and it was summer and busy. Uh, but we were, the, the woods on Pender concept really wasn't evolved yet. We were still kind of in on Pender. The motel guests were still like pre-books or people that had come before. Even the restaurant, I mean, a lot of the Pender public was still perceiving it as memories at the end. So there was still that kind of, you know, getting your feet wet 
part. So the first season was really just survival, getting through the summer. And then by September, October, we crashed. Like it just, the restaurant, you know, we kind of built this model to be really busy. And then like literally by after Labor Day, the business died down. Then it became a new reality. There's kind of like a new learning curve of the restaurant business on Pender very quickly. So we kind of opened up with a bang uh, and even the lodging, I mean, I'd not operated a hotel before. And so, you know, operating a restaurant, trying to <laughs> build that business, and then being in the lodging business all of a sudden, like within a very tight time period. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what are you thinking at this time? Because you said that uh, your your friends in Vancouver were thinking you were crazy for doing this. Like, what's going through your head after this first uh, like year is almost over, I guess, at this point? I mean, I mean, I conceptualized it. I, w I was pretty certain where I was going to end up. I mean, I did the video within a week or two of flying here and looking at the property. If you look at the video today, it's pretty much what it is today. Like, like the video I did in whatever it was, August, 2014 versus 2023 is virtually the same. <laughs> like the vibe and, and the concept is really not different than it was then. So that vision, it was just, you're just literally surviving. You're trying to put, I mean, I got people coming, arriving and guests checking in. We got mess, you know, like things aren't done properly. You're trying to adjust. So I'd never really operated a business for, I mean, I did business and I was in business and I did deals and I owned businesses, but I didn't have employees. I wasn't like operating waiters and house cleaners and and I, you know, have experience in the hotel business, but you do a job. You're a bartender, you're a cooking in a kitchen. Those are jobs, not running the whole hotel. Yeah. So this was, so I'm learning as I'm going along with everything. It was just all with a macro vision of where I wanted to end up, but it was messy. Like, it's just messy. You just, you literally get up in the morning, you work all day, like from morning till night, and you're just dealing with crisis all day. <laughs> you're dealing with like what's in your face, trying to keep the deliverables high at a high level. But it's, you know, it's not, it's not like it's your 10th deal. And this is like easy because you've done it before. This is all new, pretty new. Even though I'd done all the components before, mm -hmm. you know, I knew how to do accounting. I knew how to do bartending I knew how to cook but all of a sudden you're doing all of it all at once and managing people which I'd never really done in my career so okay okay well this is interesting what what I'm going to do here is we're going to hit the pause button on uh pender at the moment and we're going to go back to uh different points in your life because you, you brought up a couple things that I want to touch on so you talked about being involved in the real estate industry and also being involved in the uh, restaurant and service industry. So maybe to give a little bit of a uh, background about your involvement in doing deals and being involved in uh, real estate, if you could explain to myself and the listeners a little bit about how you got involved in that and your experiences there. So I, I grew up in like 14 years old, working in kind of restaurants, hotels, some family businesses. Um, so I being involved in the food and restaurant business and hotel business from 14 years old all the way through. My mother also owned a grocery store. So I grew up from like eight years old till 13, 14. She had a health food store. She was a naturopath. So she fed cancer patients, put them on pH balance, seven diets, supplied all their food. So I kind of grew up with in the food genre, you know, from very young, like eight years old. Um, and she was always talked to me like an adult my siblings were older. So 
by the time I grew up at eight to 13 years old, I was pretty much like an only child and my mother worked. So I went to work with her. <laughs> so I basically was stocking shelves, parking groceries, doing all that kind of stuff at an early age. Wow. Stocking the, can- you know, going to the wholesaler, buying the candy, chocolate bars, kind of involved in commerce and also health food. So my mother was a naturopath. So we ate, you know, organic farm food all my life. Like that's all I was exposed to. So the idea of, you know, sourcing local farm, fresh food, organic, eating healthy, cooking with grapeseed oil rather than olive oil, all those kinds of things that I do now, I learned in that genre. And then by about 14, I started working in restaurants like I had a job at a restaurant bussing tables at 14. And then I started cooking by about 15, 16. I was in the kitchen, got thrown in the kitchen because the chef walked out at 7 p.m. on a, with 50 people in the restaurant. So that's how I learned how to cook. I got literally thrown in. It was a dining room. So we did you know steaks, lobster, kind of old style Canadian fine dining. And then I worked pretty much... All of my jobs were food related all the way through till, you know, Edmonton Convention Center, the Westin, the Four Seasons. And then I moved to Vancouver when I was 20 to be the bar manager at the Pan Pacific, worked at the Bayshore for a few months before that. And then I guess 21, 22, like then I was, so I worked through Expo till September. I got accepted to BCIT to take their real estate program Okay. in September of that year. So that would be 86. And then, so by September I was in school, but then I bartended. So I gave up the bar manager job, became a bartender at the Pan Pacific. And then I worked through school at the Pan Pacific, got a real estate, I guess, dip tech at the time, and then went into the real estate business. So I got hired out of school. I went into commercial real estate business. Mm-hmm. So 88 for a small boutique firm, Bruno and Associates. And then I worked till, till up until 94 for them. 94, we started our own company. So four guys from Bruno split off and we started our own real estate company, okay. our own commercial real estate company. Not long after that, I started doing deals, investment deals, started buying buildings. And then eventually started getting into the retail business side of the business as a broker. So I kind of did the investment side and then I became a retail rep. So I started doing Aritzia like 93, 93, 94. When I started my company, I started also doing Aritzia and their family also did Hills of Carisdale and Blue Ruby almost at the same time. So I kind of had two businesses. I did the retail rollouts and then did my own investment deals, which I did all the way through the nineties. So I kind of had two things that I did. Okay, this is sounding like a lot of life experience here. I want to I want to actually just like uh, slow down and pull it back to uh, the time in the beginning there with your mother is like stocking the shelves a little bit because I'm I we we actually talked about this a couple months ago and you went into depth talking about your experience in the restaurant industry, but I didn't actually know that that was your you know, childhood experience growing up with that particular situation. But that sounds pretty great to like having a mom who was a naturopath who really spent a lot of time in preparing really healthy, wholesome, organic food for you. Well, she's, and she's sore. So all these cancer patients went on Leotril. It was an experimental drug that came across from Mexico to Texas. And then you would pH balance your entire diet to seven and then eat nothing that created toxicity in your body. So anything that your body would consider a carcinogen, like 
like cooking olive oil, which becomes hypermolecular and becomes toxic to your body. So anything that your body would have to fight off, we eliminated or she eliminated. So all your foods were supernatural, no impurities, no chemicals in order for your body to be relaxed and able to fight off the cancer. So and in addition, so pH balance seven. So the cancer survives on acidic or, or alkaline. It has to be out of balance. That's when it sort of starts to grow and multiply. So you kind of take away that ability for cancer to thrive, almost like parasites. You take away the sugar and things that they eat. Um, and then in, in addition to that, they would be on this experimental leotril drug, which was kind of one of the first cancer drugs. Uh, and it was experimental, so it had to be brought in through Mexico. It was kind of a bit controversial. And she had huge success stories. Some One woman was stage four cancer, about to you know months to live, lived for 14, 15 more years. Um, so anyways, that was kind of her grocery store, health food store. And we had families that would buy all their groceries with us. It's kind of like a country store. And where was this exactly? Uh, just by Leduc, Alberta. Okay. So it's kind of like a Southridge kind of store. Yeah. Similar to that. And so when you were a kid uh, having that experience, because it's, it's interesting to think like I, my experience as a kid growing up was in the suburbs and uh, my parents got really busy working a lot and I would uh, eat uh, a lot of fast food. But it sounds like that was a completely opposite experience that like, did you have any interest in like foods like that or because you it, were, we had, I mean, we had chocolate bars, pop cigarettes. I didn't drink pop and I owned the candy counter and I owned like my mother would give me and I would go to the wholesaler and kind of stock the candy counter and the chocolate bars. Yeah. And she kind of bought me some and then I leveraged it. And so that was actually my business, but I never ate chocolate bars and I never drank pop. Wow. Just, I just never grew up with it. It was just like, I never ate white sugar. Until I started cooking and baking, I cooked with a French chef. I started cooking in a kitchen and I was making Bavarian moose cakes and flans and sacker torts. So I actually got sick because I had never eaten that much sugar. And you're making it, so you wind up eating it. Yeah. It, my body reacted because I'd never eaten. We'd only eaten demerara sugar, unprocessed, unpasteurized honey. We ate things like fruit crisps and. We had, you know, ice cream was probably my biggest non-naturopathic food that we ate, but I never drank pop, hardly ever. I mean, I maybe tasted it, but I never really drank it as a regular kid. And we never ate things like Twinkies or hot dogs. All our meat was, you know, we'd eat like top sirloins. We, we did eat meat, but it was all like farm meat because we would source it for people. So that's all we ate was the food we bought so yeah i think that's so cool that your mom gave you an opportunity to run the candy counter and learn what it's like to start your own little business within a business at such a young age and she needed to help so i think she was smart enough to know that you need to kind of interest your kid because <laughs> she needed somebody to do it and also you know pretty much a single mother even though we had, I had four siblings but they were all older and gone so she was a business owner, you know, working hard nonstop. So having me involved in helping her, getting me involved or getting me engaged, I guess, was probably ne necessary for her. That's cool. That's really cool. What did you learn from that experience as a kid when you were working the candy counter? Like what sort of lessons were you able to pull down at that, that age? I mean, I guess you just get a perception of profit and loss, I guess, or like buying wholesale, selling retail, 
my mother was a really good retailer, so she was very perceptive. Southridge is actually a, I have a soft spot for Southridge because it's a lot of what I grew up with, you know, the sourcing all the kind of cool products that consumers can relate to or interest rather than just doing sort of Safeway store shelves, selling commodities. It was always more than that. It was always like actually listening to the customers and buying B-Bell bakery bread that comes, you know, like literally like whole grains that are milled by B-Bell bakery and just the concept of all of that, which was relating to a specific customer. So you know, kind of merchandising and tweaking your retail mix to, to cater to the customer. Yeah. I think at a very early age, I think is what you, it's what I grew up with. That's what I was used to. She was very good at it. That's really cool. I, I, I think that's amazing, actually. So you mentioned as well, too, that it was at the age of 14 that you had your first job working in a restaurant? Ex outside of family. I mean, I grew up, my father was in printing and publishing and had Bonanza restaurants and stuff. So I grew up around business my whole, like from birth, <laughs> pretty much. But the first job outside of my family was at 14, I think. Also worked, I mean, I had a couple of jobs when I was 14, 15. One of them external, one of them in a family-related hotel. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, 14, 15, I was working externally and then all the way through till my 20s. Yeah. So I went back to school. I went to school. So uh, what did you enjoy about the restaurant industry that kept you in there for the, the number of years that it did? It was, I mean, it was one of my initial passions. So architecture, I was going to be an architect when I was 10 or 11 years old. I was like 8 to 11, 12. And then chef, I thought that I was going to be a chef like at about 12, 11 or 12, I think. So the food cooking business was kind of in my head and architecture. Those are kind of my two main focuses when I was a child. And then I started working in restaurants. So, and then I got thrown in the kitchen and I started cooking. So I think it's just a industry that's easy to do when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, you can't really, I can't work as a plumber. So I think <laughs> it's just kind of what you do. And then I had that background of food sourcing with my mother, I guess, or being, you know, at grocery store. So being around food products was not foreign to me. So, um, and then I, was pushed to front of house by 18, 19 years old. Like bosses wanted me to go front of house. And then I had, I got swooped in with a couple key people. So I worked with a French chef for a while, which taught me a lot about cooking. And then I went front of house and I got a job at the Edmonton Convention Center when it opened and got under the wing of the banquet manager and the general manager of the convention center. You know, worked my head off and they kind of almost nurtured me and I learned a whole lot. They sort of pushed me up to, from porter to head waiter to head bartender. And then had always wanted to move out of Edmonton and move to Vancouver. So the boss that I had at the Edmonton Convention Center and my three bosses at the Westin in Edmonton moved to Vancouver to open the Pan Pacific. So he gave me the head bartender job, the bar manager job in, at the Pan Pacific. And I'd worked under them in Edmonton. But it wasn't open yet. So I moved here in April to Vancouver, worked at the Bayshore until the Pan Pacific opened, but knowing that I already had the job at the Pan Pacific. 
So I love the idea of you saying that you learned a lot from a French chef because I've I've heard this before in various places in my life. Like, oh, a French chef. What are you learning from a French chef in that setting? I mean, I was focused on French food anyways, French language, French food. So it, I mean, I did a ton of baking, sacre torts, barbarian moose cakes, flans, aspects, all the kind of classic cooking things like cooking steaks saucy something like all the things that were kind of classic french was what he did like mm-hmm. I, we made a savory pate with cognac and butter and cream and chicken livers and shallots so i learned you know that's all what i learned how to cook was shallots and cognac and all the kind of classic like pernod cassis all those kind of classic french back then it was either italian or french like fine dining was more focused on those two genres okay like today, there's worldwide cuisine, nouveau cuisine, Noma kind of food, which was not common back then. It was either Canadian food or French or Italian restaurants. So French was kind of our version of fine dining. So, you know, cook with a French chef would be doing meringues and all that kind of stuff That's would be the top end of the food spectrum. And that's who you you would either hire a Swiss or a French chef to run your hotel back then. It was like Hervé Martin was the chef at the Pan Pacific. Those are the guys you hired. They were either Swiss, Swiss French, Swiss German, or French. Almost all the chefs in all the hotels were, were in that. Like now you hire, there's superstar Canadians and Americans and Norwegians and all over the world. But back then they were pretty much trained in the culinary schools of Switzerland or France if you were like working in a Four Seasons or a Pan Pacific. So those are the guys you work with and trained with. When you talked about being in the kitchen and then being let out or pushed out to work in the front of house and then doing the bartending, those are three different situations. Which one do you think you thrived in more? The front of house, you can make more money. You can, I mean, if you're going to be like a general manager of a hotel, you would want to be in the front of house, either front off, like front desk or so t- I was on the food and beverage side. So, but I worked for the Edmonton convention center was my first big job. I mean, they have dinners for 3000 people, French service. So my first job was, I was the daytime guy that did all the bank, like all the coffee lunch programs, um, and ran that whole thing myself. So we had, I don't know, like six to 10 daytime meetings and they'd have you know coffee and pastries and then they'd have lunch that was all kind of continental like not table service you just literally set up a buffet table the banquet manager just wanted I mean I was like 18 years old 19 years old so he wanted to keep training me because I worked my head off and you know they recognize young people they want to keep training them and moving them up because they need people to supervise right we'd have all these temporary people that would get hired to do a 3000 person banquet. So somebody had to train them that was experienced and we did French service for everybody. So like spoon and fork, literally taking a platter and serving the plates. So that was a little more technical than putting a plated plate in front of somebody. Yeah. 3000 people is a staggering number. Yeah. It was like a football field, the main banquet hall. And we would do dinners for 3000 people like Tina Turner concert. 3,000 people, table service, round tables with French service, platters of food that you have to carry from the kitchen. And it's like a like a football field. <laughs> it was crazy. It was very aggressive. So he was 
trained at one of the best culinary hotel schools in Europe. So the general manager and the banquet manager were both British. And I kind of got under the wing of the banquet manager. So so he immediately kind of pushed me to wait and then head waiter. And then I also worked with the bar department and trained as a bartender there. And then at the same time, I had a part-time job at the Westin and worked with the Pan Pacific guys, Stephen Halliday, Jan Sager, Dean Solomon. He was the banquet manager at the Westin. So I kind of worked with them part-time. And then they all, all three of those guys came to Vancouver to open the Pan Pacific. And so at that point in your life, you said that you wanted to leave Edmonton. So the I invite- wanted to come to Vancouver wanted- specifically. Okay. So the invite from them to say, come with us was, was perfect time. It was, yeah. I mean, I knew I could work with them, but he wanted me specifically to be the banquet beverage manager to run the bars. That was the job that he wanted me to do. And so I ended work with all these guys directly. So they all knew who I was. So it wasn't a big stretch. And I actually originally came to Vancouver because the Mandarin Hotel. So my guy that I work with at the Edmonton Convention Center moved to Vancouver and he was a bank a head waiter at the Crystal Dining Room in the Mandarin Hotel. So they actually wanted me to come and work for them. So I flew out, did an interview, gave my notice to quit my job. And a week into it, they pulled the plug because I was they were overruled by the food and beverage manager, which is a long story, but he for some reason, didn't like something, even though I was qual- like heavily qualified and the maitre d' and the head waiter both wanted me to work directly with them. So it was, should have been a slam dunk. So they actually did me a favor and I didn't get hired there, but I'd already given my two weeks notice. So I moved to Vancouver with no job, basically, knowing that the Pan Pacific was ultimately a job, but that was nine months down, down the road because I moved in April and it was, Pan Pacific wasn't open until January of 86. Okay. So I went to the Bay Shore on Monday. I got here Sunday, packed up my car Friday, drove to Vancouver, arrived on Sunday. Monday morning, went to the Weston Bay Shore and started on Tuesday. So I lost one day of work. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I worked in the restaurant there for nine or whatever from April till December and then started at the Pan Pacific as soon as they were ready to open. How was that experience? Because I, I don't specifically remember myself, but I kind of imagine the Pan Pacific opening in Vancouver was a big deal. It was the best hotel in Western Canada. Like best hotel in Vancouver, like highest end hotel, Japanese owned, like the five sales. They had a Japanese restaurant that was third party, but like high end sushi. So it was like the highest end sushi Japanese restaurant in Vancouver at the time. And then they had the five sales, which was classic French and Hervé Martin, French chef was running the hotel. They had a really good team of people. And Stephen Halliday was ran the Weston worked for the Weston was the general manager of the Weston in Edmonton. So he had a lot of pedigree and John Sagers was this great guy. So they had great management team. Five sales was like the best restaurant in Vancouver and then this high-end Japanese, and then the rooms were beautiful, bird's eye maple at the time. They spent the most per room of any hotel ever uh, at the time, wow. I think in North America, like whatever, I can't remember what it was, quarter of a million dollars a room or something, crazy amount of money. And then it was also opening during Expo, so Canada Pavilion, it was an epic opening. That whole year was crazy. Like yeah. all the dignitaries, Nakasone, 
And then we did the Commonwealth Conference. It was all headquartered. Pan Pacific was kind of the epicenter of all of Expo. Like everybody who was anybody stayed there, the Sultan of Brunei. The, so it was kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime period of time for the Pan Pacific, which is you know, it's kind of tragic to go there today and stay there because it still looks the same as it did in 1986. And in 86, it was the top hotel in Western Canada, and now it's this tragic kind of hasn't been updated. It's just, it's kind of weird. So what was that like in that first year with all that excitement going on? How did that feel for you? Because were you... great for me because of, I was the head bar, like, you know, the bar manager. So I did all the head tables and then I went back to school. And because I had supervisory experience or was the bar manager, I, so whenever I would come back and work on the weekends, I'd get to work like either private functions. It was great. Like I served... Margaret Thatcher, Dennis Thatcher, Mulrooney, all the dignitaries. I did the Nakasone Bennett Summit. There was one Canadian, which was me, and one Japanese guy that did the Japanese side. So we did rehearsed for two days and did all that. I served Princess Di, Prince Charles. It was crazy. It was a crazy period of time. And because of my who I was or what I was trained to do, I did all those head tables. So it was kind of pretty once in a lifetime. And and I guess it's in the service industry, If you, it's easy to dumb it down. So working at the best, you know, you can't make mistakes, right? You're serving Mulrooney and he's looking at you with hawk eyes and like you have to be perfect. Otherwise, you can't talk too much. You have to, you know, serve the wine with one finger. Like you just have to do everything. You can't drop wine on the table. <laughs> like you just can't make mistakes. So it's easy to dumb it down, I think. So I was lucky to my start in the service industry was kind of emphatic. Did you see a lot of people crumble under that kind of pressure around you or, or they got weeded out very quickly? I think think back in the day, like when I came here to work at the Bayshore hotels had older people that had worked there as career waiters, career bartenders. Mm -hmm. So I think the overall quality, like people had tenure back then, it goes just in Europe in January and the service people there were more like they were back when I started today. They're like, people are actors working in restaurants. They're not really serious about it as much as they were. Even if you go to a four seasons today, the service quality is more temporary. It's not like it was before. So back then, you know, people were like at the Bayshore, they had women that had worked there 25 years. (laughs) They were going to retire at the Bayshore. So people had career Careers as bartenders and waiters back then, doormen were, you know, 50 years old. Today, it's not like that. It's much more of a, you know, it's harder to get staff. Um, Those career people have retired and they've been replaced with young people. So I don't think the quality is the same. But in Europe, it's, I mean, people had way more knowledge about, you know, here in in Vancouver, you go to the high-end restaurants, the quality of the staff is much better because you can make more money. So they... They attract the best of the industry and we've got great people, but in general, the overall service quality is less than it used to be, I think. Well, what was the camaraderie like between uh, staff members? Because if they'd been working together for so long, I guess that there there obviously wasn't a high turnover rate, clearly. Pat Pacific was new though, so it was non-unionized and new. So Bayshore was unionized and it had all that tenure of people that had worked there a long time. Pan Pacific was brand new. So all of us were new. So no, nobody had worked at the Pan Pacific because it was like literally open in January and we all worked there. 
but the quality of the staff was good because it was a new sexy hotel. So, you know, pretty much we had a lot of pretty good staff. I think the management team was very strong, but again, I mean, the deliverables were different than they are now. Like the bar program today co- to being a, a top cocktail, a bartender today or mixologist is way more intense than it used to be. Like the level of complexity on the bar, like back then you'd make Caesars and vodka tonics and, and you'd make the some mixed drinks, but you know your menu is much more predictable than it is today. Today you're making your own bitters. It's like much more complicated. Even the coffee program today. I mean, so there's there's parts of the industry that are much more complex and specific. Even cooking now is much more, you know, technical. The equipment, combi ovens, all the kind of and sous vides and like the, it's different now than it was back then. It's more like French food. <laughs> cooking in a copper pan with butter, like it was just different than it is now. You mentioned as well, too, that you were going to school during this time. What made you decide that you wanted to go to school? It was pretty much in my head all the way through. I started in university in Alberta, and then I just I, I just decided to work. Um, so I kind of dropped out. And then I pretty much figured out by 1920 that, you know, I looked at Stephen Halliday's salary, you know, working his entire life to get to be the general manager of the Pan Pacific and kind of looked at how long it would take to get to that level. There's a big gap. So in the, you know, in the beginning of the service industry, so the waiters in a hotel or the bartenders in a hotel would make actually more money than the supervisors. So I kind of looked at the industry thinking, you know, once I get out of my hourly wage, so working the way I was working, I was getting paid for every hour I worked and I'd get overtime and then I'd get tips. And it was, I was probably making 30 bucks an hour at 20 or 19, 20 years old. Um, but I looked at my next levels of where I would go and it didn't, I knew I would go back to school and do something. So initially I was going to go work for my mother's family in Texas. I thought of that. Like, so I enrolled in an industrial marketing course at BCIT to go work for them potentially. And then it got canceled. So I, flipped into real estate and then that was it. Okay. So what made you choose real estate? Just, well, it was kind of accidental. They literally canceled the industrial marketing program. Okay. And after getting accepted, rolled and then making all the plans to do that. My family were all coming out for expo. So they were all here staying at the Pan Pacific. Initially real estate wasn't what I was going to get. It actually flipped into it literally like by September, they canceled the program and I was in real estate. They gave me a choice, like, what do you want to flip into? There was like five choices. So I picked real estate, went back to school, didn't really understand where I would end up at the beginning of the program. Your real estate part is the second year. So first year is marketing, just like a regular course. Everybody takes it. So everybody's in the same course for the first year. And then the second year is your specialty. But I really didn't know that I was going to be in commercial real estate at that point. Um, And then you start learning your options, I guess, as you go in. And by the time I was in my second year, then you're starting to look at, like you do an apprenticeship. We did it with Colliers. So we did an industrial map for Colliers. This is historical. Like every year, BCIT or UBC students do these internships with companies that they want to get into. So eventually we're going to be, like we're, we're graduating with a real estate dip tech marketing real estate so you get a directed studies job not paid with 
a company that you're going to ultimately maybe work for. Colliers would hire or would bring in these students. So there was three of us and we went to Collier's offices and did a map for them, an industrial map. So we literally drove the lower mainland and mapped out all the industrial parks. So we, they, they have a industrial map. And so our job was to take the map and update it to what it is today. So we literally had to do all of the industrial areas in the lower mainland and update the map. So we had to literally drive around and interview and do like, there's a lot of work to do. And this is part of our course. It was a course, one of our credits. Uh, One of the three actually worked for Collier's. I got another job at Bruno, but all of us got hired at a school pretty much pre-hired. Like by the time you're graduated, you've already been hired. Okay. Well, no, I've never heard of Collier's or Bruno before. I don't know what business they're actually Collier's is is like a worldwide, huge real estate company all over the world. Okay. All right. Bruno was a seven salesman plus Von Bruno. Von Bruno was this iconic commercial real estate guy. He never made less than a million dollars in commissions from 1974. Like I started working for him in 88. Never less than a million dollars, like one to two million dollars in commissions. Whoa. He used to be the president of Knowlton's, which was like an iconic real estate company. All boutique, like top producers. So there was seven older guys that had lots of experience. So it was a boutique firm versus Collier's that had, you know, 200 employees. So one of the guys that was my friend that we graduated with, like you pick your directed studies team. So they're all, all of us hung out together. So we all went to Collier's, did the project. One of them became eventually, he now runs a development company, but he was like, became a VP of Collier's at one point. So he went, he got hired by the same company. We all got job offers from them, but only one of us chose them. I wanted a more boutique firm. I thought it was more hands-on, which it was, versus working at a huge company where you become a micro player. At Bruno, you can kind of pick your spot. And I worked with a senior sales manager guy as his direct assistant. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted that versus working in a huge company. Because are you looking down the road at that point, thinking, okay, well, if I'm able to have more of a hands-on experience in a smaller company, I'm going to be able to uh, excel more later on through your career? And also Von Bruno. So his daughter actually graduated with me, Michelle Bruno. He was iconic. Like he was the top producing guy. Collier's actually ultimately had a guy at the same time, Aftar Baines, who became like the top realtor in Canada. But it was a huge company. So to me, I wanted more intimate, hands-on work. And I picked it based on the guy I was working with. I was working with one guy, whereas at Collier's, you could work as an assistant to the industrial team or the office team. It's more, you know, you're in a big bunch of cubicles with a whole bunch of guys versus Bruno, which was, I worked with the sales manager guy directly with him, learned way more. So that was my perception. And it was also the reality that I I literally was his assistant. I wrote all his contracts. He threw me into the wolves. Like just like I was like hands-on right from the start doing his deals with him. He okay. was a sales guy. So we were selling Granville Street, all downtown south. We sold like 12 buildings in the first year. And I would write the contracts versus Collier's where you get you're, – you're a gopher kind of running around being an assistant. This was like literally working directly with a guy doing deals with him. Okay. 
So you're you're selling commercial real estate, or is it residential as well too? Or? No, only commercial. All right, and so at, at this point, I guess you've uh, totally put the the restaurant side of things on the back burner, and you're. you're- yeah, I tried to work at the Pan Pacific a little bit while I was working there in the beginning because they don't pay you a lot; they pay you like a thousand bucks a month for twelve months while Whoa. you're an assistant. Okay. So I had a cleaning contract. I tried to bartend. It just got too much because I was working too much at the thousand dollar a month job. So. And it's your career, so it's your future career. So I eventually had to quit bartending. Uh, I bartended all the way through school and then probably the first six months of that job, and then I just couldn't anymore. I had to give it up. Um, so then it was I was out of the food and beverage industry. But then I started doing restaurant deals. I started doing Yale Town, Gastown, kind of as, as a broker. So I was still kind of a little bit in the restaurant business as a broker, leasing space to restaurants and stuff, but. So as the years are going by and you're doing this, are you are you enjoying the work? Are you getting a lot of benefit out of this personally from it in terms of excitement and value of uh, of doing the work? Yeah, I mean it I picked a, a occupation where your outcome is based on your effort. So, I mean you're somewhat limited in the hotel business because if I work 3 times harder than the other guy, I'm still making the same amount of money. So the commercial real estate, the smarter you are, the harder you work the more opportunities you're going to get commissions based on the deals you do. It's a hundred percent commission. So you, once you get out on your own and you're finished your assistance gig, you're literally like no income. <laughs> so you have to manifest everything yourself. Yeah. You have to get the listing, you have to sell the listing or lease the listing in order to make a commission and put it all together. So you're running your own business. So that that's the, the platform that I intentionally put myself in, but I, picked Bruno because it was hands-on. I was going to learn more about the industry. And then because working with all these senior guys, they were just like really smart. Like I literally was there's seven guys plus him. So they're like, you're really in the middle of uh, like, kind of like working for a micro investment bank versus a huge, huge company. Um, so I don't know anything about commercial real estate. And this is really interesting to me. So can you explain a bit of the ins and the outs about how this works? Like how does working smarter exactly play out in a real life scenario in terms of that? In commercial real estate, you have kind of, unless you're a senior guy and you get a job as a commercial realtor and you've been in business for a while, but generally coming up as a young person, you either have to go to BCIT and get the dip tech in real estate, or you go to Urban Land Economics at UBC. Those are the two options to get a job. So all of us pretty much have a degree in real estate and that's how you get hired. And then you work for an, as an assistant for one year to train six months to 12 months. And then you are on your own. You're basically, it's a hundred percent commission. So you have to manifest. So depending on where your office is. So our office was in downtown Vancouver. Bruno is known for office leasing. So we really did a lot of downtown Vancouver stuff. We weren't an industrial firm, so we didn't do like, Collier's has a big industrial division, so they're doing like Tilbury and, you know, Anasis Island and all kinds of stuff, which actually I had exposure to because we did the industrial map for Collier's. So I knew about all those areas, but our focus was pretty much the downtown core, which is what I ultimately did. I started as a young person breaking in. I was able to get into the downtown South, Yale Town and Gastown markets, and I became kind of the guy. I did like half the deals there. That's how I, once I went on my own. Because Anson did sales in the downtown core. So we did, like, I, literally we sold, like, four buildings on Granville Street. And, a, and that downtown south area was getting rezoned. It used to be all nightclubs and 
It's all getting rezoned to high rise. So we sold a lot of buildings that were going to get redeveloped into towers. It was an emerging market. It got rezoned by the city and densified. So I started doing Yale town. I really was a, attracted to heritage and architecture always like right from a young child. So Yale town, gas town were funkier deals, cooler buildings. And then I just got into them and I like literally had 12 buildings listed. So a lot of leasing and then a little bit of sales, but I became kind of the dominant Yale town, gas town guy did most of the deals. Um, so that was kind of my shtick. And you have a bunch of signs. So I've got, you know, leasing signs everywhere. So tons of calls, tons of tours. So I was just like running like crazy from 88 to 94 when we started our company doing Yale Town, Gastown deals. That was kind of my thing. Okay. So what did a typical day look like in terms of what you were doing and the amount of hours that you're putting in per day during those years? Just because I had a lot of small listings, a lot of buildings, like the L-Town buildings. So you had 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 square feet, tons of tours, tons of calls versus selling a shopping center where you're dealing with investors and there's less calls because there's no sign outside a shopping center. You're <laughs> doing more direct marketing to people that have $20 million to buy a shopping center. I was doing deals with restaurants and you know small offices, startup businesses. So tons of volume leasing up these buildings, you know, I'd have 30, 40 spaces and I'd get, you know, 20 calls a day. <laughs> I was constantly running in and out in my car doing tours, but they're all in the downtown course. They're all in, you know, I was like literally commercial plate parking and loading docks, uh, running like a thousand miles an hour, nonstop doing tons of deals, but you don't make as much per deal. So you're you know, a thousand square feet, you're making $2,000, $3,000 versus doing a big deal where you're making a big commission. So I don't know, it's just typical day is nonstop. Like you're in the office by seven or eight and you're leaving it. I work longer than the other guys. The other guys were older. So I'd work 12 hour days probably. Uh, when you're looking back on that time, what do you reflect on as like uh, an aspect of it that you, uh, you really enjoy and you miss from those times? It was fine. I mean, in 94, when we started our own company, that was pretty exciting. We were, I was 30 and we were four guys. I'd never had my own company before. So that was pretty exciting. I think the whole nineties, like, especially from about 93, 94 through that period was pretty exciting five year period. But I think I, I look back, I think part of the angst that I had back then, and it was, it was a lot of angst. I was pretty much singularly focused on career and business. I wouldn't want to go back to that personal stage of my life so much, but it was exciting from a business point. I mean, you're a young person and you're trying to conquer the world. I think I was doing it for the wrong reasons, but, you know, family acceptance, trying to, you know, be the next billionaire by the time I was 40, like working my head off, taking, you know, lots of calculated risks just to be successful. Like, I don't think I was doing it for the right reasons necessarily. Um, I don't know. It just is what it is, right? But I don't think I don't think I was doing it necessarily for a deep-rooted emotional reason. I think I was doing it because that's what I was trained to do <laughs> as a family, as a genetically or was to work, right? So, well, well, can you tell me a bit about that? Like, because like, what was your family? You mentioned that your family was involved in business in Texas, and so maybe to give a little more shape and clarity to that. All of my family are in business. So three generation, grandfather, uncles, 
father, mother, siblings, all were self-employed pretty much. It's kind of what we do. Not as much. I mean, I have some that are maybe lawyers or politicians, but generally they're business owners. It's kind of what we do. My mother's family, Texas, um, like they're in business. My father was in business. My brothers were in business. My mother was in business. So I was trained to be in business, I guess, ultimately. So commercial real estate was kind of like having your own business. And then we actually started our own commercial real estate company. So when I say I was trained to do it, that's pretty much my life. Like it was, I was, I, I think I had good training to be a business person. I'm not sure I had a lot of uh, personal balance training. <laughs> so, which I think Pender ultimately was kind of a, a metamorphosis or, a, or a, a change in my life, I think, when I moved to Pender. A little more complete life, even though I work nonstop, which I always have. From a personal connection point of view, like less barriers, less boxes. Um, Pender was kind of like a big change in that part of my life, I think. Back then, I lived in boxes, so I, I was very calculated, very emphatic about each box being separate from the other which was a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work to be that intentful on being successful and also guarding parts of your life, like not exposing who you are really. So constantly being calculated with everything you do. So that was, it was hard work during that period. Also lots of success, but I think I didn't necessarily do it for all the right reasons, I guess, because it wasn't connected, wasn't holistic. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's really insightful. Like, uh, and I, I want to slowly meander back to Pender here, but before we get there, I think that it's interesting to tie this off a little bit. So, with with the starting of your own business in '94 and doing that and the excitement, how did that wind up evolving for you as the years went by before you got to Pender? Well, the first that first company was young and exciting. And then by 98, I, the market was crashing and I had got involved in a lot of investment deals and got caught up in a bad deal. So 94 to 98 was like crazy successful, crazy growth period, working my head off, very intentful to kind of get to the top and then came crashing down. I just did a bad, like I did a deal that I never should have done. Wouldn't have advised myself to do it. If I was asking myself as a broker, would you do this deal? I would have told you you're crazy, not don't do it. And I closed it and I did it and it wound up sort of catapulting a whole sort of chain of events from 98 to 2000 that personally and business-wise that that created a lot of disheveledness, I guess. So that wasn't a good period of time. 2000, I had given up that company. So I basically moved away. It was a partnership anyway. So we, my partner took it over by then. And then I moved on basically sold off all of my real estate. I had a bunch of stuff in Alberta from 98 to 2000 had gotten rid of most of it. And then 2000, I was basically out of like not doing anything. <laughs> it wasn't my whole sort of investment business that I had done was not happening at the moment. And, and so I, um, a guy, Aritzia actually's best friend worked for Avis and Young, a commercial real estate company had a huge TELUS contract. And they needed a retail guy because I'd always done Aritzia and Blue Ruby and all those other guys. So he hired me to go to Avison to run the TELUS account, all the re retail for Canada on my own. So that became a six-year job. So changed everything I did. I gave up my company and worked for Avison 
for six years and we did, I did all the repositioning of Telus Mobility. So we merged all those companies when they had bought all the phone companies. They bought QuebecTel, ClearNet, uh, Telus and BCTel merged. I created a national retail, retail platform for them, integrated all of their 900 retail locations in the West and then coordinated that with corporate stores in Toronto, the ClearNet guys. So that was a huge project. Closed all the phone stores for Telus. They had all the BCTel phone stores. I closed all those. We had a budget, went through and negotiated all the terminations. And then for six years, there was a dealer network in the West, 900 locations with all these like Tom Harris cellular and all these. So we took back all the A real estate. We took back all the mall locations, all the A street front, head leased them from Telus and then subleased back to the dealer. And then we, everything was a Telus store. So we centrally designed all the stores, including dealer stores. So they all look like Telus stores. Uh-huh. So it was a massive job for six years. So that became my focus. And I did the other stuff for Ritzy and stuff on the side. So that took me through till like 2006, 2007. And then just kept doing retail stuff. So I added more clients, retail clients, sort of six, seven. I went back on my own again. So I worked from home at Corville Group. So my company now that kind of operates in conjunction with Pender Island Resorts, okay. is, that sort of got more active. So then in the 2013-14, I just got bored with it all. Like So from 2006, well, actually 2000 when I did the Telus stuff all the way through to 2014, I had done all these retail deals. Like I was Mr. Retail. So, what, what what do you mean by Mr. Retail? Like buying and selling retail well, places? I, rolled, I did like Telus Mobility, Aritzia, Blue Ruby, Max Mara, Campo Marzio. I had like a chain of, or like a group of retail clients and I negotiated all of their deals across the country. So for leasing? Yeah, like I did all the Aritzia deals for 22 years. So every deal that Aritzia has, mm-hmm. physical store deal they, they've done in Canada, I did them from 1993 till 2015. Okay. Every deal they did, I negotiated them. They had a real estate department, but I negotiated them, found the location, negotiated the terms for every deal they did. And Blue Ruby and Max Mara, we did a repositioning with them. So that's what I did all the way up till Pender. But it was getting boring. Like Aritzia had a big real estate department by then. They had a VP of, like, it was no longer me doing all the deals from start to finish. It was now, I was kind of the guy that beat up on landlords to bring it across the threshold, but then they had a whole lease administration department. <laughs> like it wasn't, it was less, it's more corporate and less hands-on. We used to bang out the deals. Like Brian and I used to bang out the deals in the beginning. Now he's like not even the CEO anymore. <laughs> he's moved on. It's like a multi-billion dollar company. Oh, really? Okay. So to 2014 comes and and so you're you're getting bored with this because it's been 14 and, years of yeah that was that beginning of 14 and then going to a family function in Texas and talking like I was trying to explore ideas of what I was going to do and I needed an active business so versus an investment business like buying a building you it's an investment it's a hands off investment so the taxation is like 45 percent. I needed an active business to replace my retail consulting business. So something that would like a mini storage or a resort are both active businesses. So I can operate them, but also have an investment side behind it. Okay. Whereas doing Aritzia deals, I make a commission and I move on. There's no equity in it. So I wanted to kind of combine the two. 
into one project. So that was kind of the intent of it. And also changed. I was like, you know, I've been in Vancouver for a long time. So it was like, I wasn't adverse to moving to New York or somewhere completely different and doing a project that was not Vancouver doing what I did. And also just kind of, I don't know, just change. I wanted some change. And then it just culminated to looking all over, like everywhere, going to New York for a mini storage conference to eventually coming to the Gulf Islands, looking at Tofino, looking at Parksville. And then it just literally by fluke flew to Pender. I'd never, I didn't even knew what Pender, I didn't really even know where Pender Island was coming from Vancouver. I mean, I knew Victoria, I knew Salt Spring, I knew Galliano, kind of, but I'd never been to Galliano other than on a boat. So I think I actually came to Pender when I was young in university. We used to boat a lot. So I, I'm pretty sure we went to Poets Cove, Browning, but I don't remember that specifically. <laughs> so, so I literally you- flew here for the first time, never seen it. Uh, Greg Rowland was my age, agent that I contacted. I saw it online, the in on, the in on Pender listed, and I saw Browning was listed with uh, LandQuest or something. So I those that was the intention of coming to Pender was look at those two properties, and the only reason I wound up on Pender is because of this that property. Okay, not because I, I didn't even know where Pender was really. So as as you're doing all this exploration throughout the province and seeing these different locations, are you getting more and more excited about the possibility of moving away from Vancouver and being in more of a rural setting? Or I didn't. It was it was literally project specific, which it is in the kind of industry that I'm I was in. You know, we're deal specific, so I wasn't adverse to anything. Like I wasn't intentionally. It wasn't a personal thing, so it was more of a. I mean, it was a personal project, but I was literally wanting to do a project and wherever that project led me to, I was open to the moving part. Wasn't the reason I was doing it. It was the project specific. I I wanted a deal to put together to combine the active business with the real estate. I wanted to have the two combined gotcha. in my next genre. So rather than just doing consulting, which, um, cause I kind of spent my career in the investment business and the brokerage business. So I kind of wanted to bring the two together. And hospitality was my background, but it wasn't my first intent. My first intent, I was looking at other deals like mini storage and just family business. Like kind of, I was just exploring ideas like you do when you want to change and you just want to do something different. Yeah. This is so interesting. This is amazing. This is such incredible uh, context for your journey to how you got here. I appreciate all these bits of your life that you're sharing. The one thing I want to make sure that I get to, though, is that you you talked about at a certain point in your life, things were in boxes and they were separated. And you mentioned before that coming to Pender, that changed a bit, that you were able to, um, I don't remember the term that you used, but like sort of like have more of a holistic, integrated experience with with being here and more of a balance in your life. Yeah, well, just being, I can be who I am, both personally and business, there's no separation between the two where there used to be. There used to be, like, I never combined my personal life with my business life other than my partners. So my, you know, Stephen, who I've been working with since 1990 at Bruno, we started Paradigm together in 94. So we, and we're still investment partners together in a, in a company. So we've been partners for 33 years. He knows everything about, I mean, I know his kids, his kids were born when we were like working together. I know his wife, I know everything about him, but in external business with clients, I'd never combined business with, with my personal life ever. And then in Pender, it's just, I mean, you're like, I'm fully exposed, <laughs> like 
the separation of business and personal is like, I live there. I'm part of it. I'm running it. It's who you are. It's how you're defined, you know, your names all over social media. It's like, you're fully vulnerable to who you are. Everybody kind of knows who you are. They knows about your personal life before I would never do that. I would always have a wall between my personal life and my business life. We're completely separate. Yeah. So how did you find that initially once you started to realize that that was happening? Like, was there a sense of discomfort that came or, or did it gradually? I don't know. Pender didn't, Pender has like an accepting, I don't, I think it's changing now a little bit with the new demographic. I don't think it's a lot changed, but I think the original exposure I had to Pender was quite unique. It's like, it's a conservative population, older population, but it's very liberal there's like a thing about Pender that's very specific. I don't think Salt Springs like that. I don't think Vancouver Island's like that. Vancouver's not like that. Like you look at say a a blue collar worker on Pender versus a blue collar worker in the Lower Mainland are completely different. Like here, there's a non phobic kind of like accepting way of Pender that's very unique. I think to Pender that I experienced. I think that's that I haven't seen in other markets or other areas that I've lived in. I think. That was kind of the magic of Pender, I think, that to me was different. It was different. It was a different experience than I was expecting in a market that's, you know, average age 59 with, you know, and the population is very conservative from an aspirational point of view, like the type of food they like. It's an older blue collar kind of market predominantly, right? Like Magic Lake, there's a lot of uh, people and and that's like similar to Langford or Langley, but they're completely different markets. Like here, it's completely like people were kind of uh, more cohesive, less phobic. So they're liberal from a social point of social point of view, but not necessarily from an aspirational sort of customer point of view for you know like kind of eggs that you like to eat, but <laughs> which was more Canadian kind of typical. Um, so anyways, I, that was kind of my experience when I came to Pender. So it was, and you're also operating a business and you're front and center to the public, which I'd never done before. I mean, I'm used to dealing with CEOs or, you know, mall guys or something, but not general public. Right. Like I don't, I didn't even deal with employees really. I was a negotiator. So I was the frontline guy that, you know, went and beat up with Cadillac Fairview <laughs> and Aritzi was my client versus the employees of Aritzi were not my client. I didn't work with them. I just work with senior VPs. Or, so that was kind of my genre. Now I'm dealing with, you know, trying to hire dishwashers and on the ground micro stuff, which, so it's kind of like a whole different occupation for me. Yeah, totally. Well, what you're saying about the uh, the kind of person that uh, lives on Pender, and I, I was just kind of thinking about it because you first mentioned you it was a busy day today, lots of tradespeople coming, right? And like we have a lot of tradespeople living on the island, and uh, they're all really pretty great guys, really, you know. It's, and it's quite different. So we have contractors that stay with us all the time, and they're loud, and you know saying swear words against women that are sitting in the room next door. Like there's a crassness typically to that that stays in my motel all the time. And they're not Pender guys. Like the Pender guys are completely different. So it's kind of weird that Pender and across the board, it's a, it's a pretty liberal, which is odd because 
we're typical Canadian, like where it's very white. It's very, it's very like typical Canadian kind of demographic that live here and they all come and stay in the motel and they're future retirees that are 50 years old. Plus they literally come to look at real estate on Pender and stay in my motel. So I see pretty much all these new people that come, I see them or meet them at some point. And they're all kind of like typical Langley suburban kind of people, but there's a different mentality i don't know whether you adapt it when you come here but because if you go to those areas it's and they and the contractors that come and stay with us like i have to sometimes go down and tell them to shut up because there's two women next to you and you're talking about you know <laughs> like something that's inappropriate sure yeah. that's just not cool but i mean you all the guys that work for me that are local or never would never do that they would never I mean, maybe they would. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, like, and I think this is really interesting because the question that you asked is, does Pedro change you? Do you adapt to it as you come to the islands, right? And I think you kind of do. Because I, I, I can remember going to Vancouver at certain points. I grew up in Vancouver. And so I go back to visit my family. And that uh, I make eye contact with people when I'm back in the city. I'll try to strike up a conversation with somebody on the SkyTrain. But after a few days, that goes away. And I'm like, oh, right, this is how everybody's behaving. This is kind of weird and people are a little bit uncomfortable. So then I stop and I become a person who's silent on the SkyTrain like everybody else. So I think that when people move here, they do adapt to the tone of the and the flavor of the island a little bit. And it does kind of change how people behave and in in quite a good way, I would suggest. Yeah, and I, I noticed it a lot more when I moved here than maybe today, but maybe I don't get out as much now. Uh, like I'm just too busy. <laughs> I don't go out on Pender very much anymore. I did more when I moved here because I was going to the market and wandering around more than I do now. But I don't know. I, I that that was kind of the unique thing of Pender was the it's like conservative but liberal. Like those two things coexist, mm -hmm. which is not common. I don't think in Canada, right? Like the the conservative parts of Canada are usually also quite phobic and kind of you know, that sort of religious right-wing conservative values sure. usually go together. There's aspects of that here, but I think in general, they're not that way. Like, it's not that way. Like, whether you're conservative from a, you know, religious point of view, I don't think that crosses over into the phobic point of view as much here than it does in the rest of Canada and other areas or the U.S. Fair um, so what did you wind up really learning about yourself in those first few years and and sort of like coming to appreciate and enjoy about this new stage of life that you uh, you got into by owning this new business and integrating into the community and being back in like the service industry? What did you uh, wind up learning about yourself in those first few years? Uh, I think it was mostly survival first couple of years. First couple of years are quite messy. Like I had a do a family deal to close the deal yeah, and that involved, you know, and then I'm trying to refinance them out and that was messy. And it's like the whole sort of first 15, 16 were quite messy. We had a lot of media initially. So mostly I was just trying to get through the day. Like it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of like the A to B was not as clear. I mean, the, the macro idea of creating woods on Pender and being successful and kind of creating a, like, that sort of end game was sort of there, but literally there was so much accounting and under, you know, I was like so behind in everything and scrambling around and working my head off and we're tired and uh, seeing the forest and the trees was very hard. Then we kind of, I eventually got 
a real mortgage to finance my family out. And then there was a little more clarity, but you know, we were kind of in the first year we were kind of in on Pender ish. So the absorption and the kind of cash flow was kind of growing gradually. The restaurant has always been the Achilles of the thing. Like it's, it's kind of the sex appeal, but also the, the most work and the least profitable. So it's always been kind of the thing that takes 60% of my time, 70% sometimes. So that's kind of continually evolved. So like first year we were like full on restaurant and then it just, you crash and burn. You just can't. And then I took over the kitchen. Now I'm cooking in the kitchen every day. Uh, so as we go along, I think COVID hit then. So like by 19, we're pretty successful. We're pretty busy. Um, but the tourism part was always challenging on Pender because it was still seasonal up to that point. So way more seasonal in 15 and 16 than it became. So we got, because of our success in the summer, it pushed people a little bit more into the shoulder season. So we as a resort got busier in March and April than other places on Pender, I think. So, and then 2020 hit. So I think, um, I think it actually was better. I think COVID actually 2020 ironically was the most profitable year because our costs were way down. Like, you know, we had rebates on things and we got government help and then our cash flow in the shoulder seasons exploded 2020, 2021. But I think, you know, the first 15 to 19, it was really just trying to grow, trying to survive. Like, I don't think there was, like there wasn't a lot of forest in the trees. It was hard to kind of see where you're going to, you're just like literally inundated yeah. nonstop. So we tried to take like more time off, like close for longer periods of time. Then COVID hit. And I think that really shook us up 2020. Like initially I thought the world was going to end because I'm in the office market in Vancouver and the resort business on Pender and my office buildings were closed for three months with no cash flow. We rebated all our tenants and my resort was closed. <laughs> I thought it was going to be the end of the world. Sure. And then it wasn't. We've kind of pushed through in Vancouver and survived. And then I, like over the course of the last couple of years, have really pushed to kind of, you know, tweak and add more units. And uh, so I think we're like now today, it's more clear than it was in 19, like ni up to 19. I think I was just trying to survive and we're busier and busier and busier, but you're also like physically exhausted. Yeah. And you're, and there's not really a lot of an end game at that point. I think today there's more, you know, kind of a, the restaurants being tweaked. COVID kind of allowed us to kind of push more into the coffee pastry side out of survival. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a, and the store component was added. So I think the restaurant kind of makes more sense now. That was always the problem. You know, we just did too much. Like I did dinner four days a week. It's just too much, right? It's just too much to keep up with all that personally. Now I think we're in a better place with the restaurant. So today I think it's more clear than it was. Whether that answers your question? No. Well, okay. So the the restaurant in particular, though, right? Like going for dinner there. You what what I've noticed is that uh, talking to Johnny, who I did an interview with, who people can listen to. Uh, it was a, a few episodes back. Johnny Cuttingham, who's the uh, the chef at the the restaurant there, and. It's kind of amazing the amount of effort and precision and high quality ingredients that you guys use in the restaurant. And uh, I think that the level of uh, care that uh, gets put into the food is quite remarkable. And maybe if you could just speak to that a little bit, because um, it's interesting to 
to know what your background was with you explaining your mom's experience uh, being a naturopath and feeding high quality ingredients to uh, cancer patients. And I guess that experience really followed through to what you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the vegan movement to me, like being plant-based or plant-focused, healthy ingredient focused comes natural to me. So yeah, it's definitely a big part of what we do. Like Raven Rock is kind of a strategic part of that. Wilderwood Farms now doing all our salad mixes and stuff. The idea of sourcing farm and making sure that we cook with grapeseed oil and cook like an, in a nurturing way, I think definitely comes from my upbringing. But again, it goes back to that service mentality versus like in the service industry, you've got to be service focused. So you're always trying to please your guests. I think that's that's a big part of how, what you need to be to be successful in the service industry is always make sure your deliverables are there kind of deal with, you know, make sure people are nurtured and the tactility is there, the emotional provocations there. That takes a lot of input, but you're also trying to survive. So we're kind of on Pender, you're kind of this matrix. You can't be sort of super intentional and go out and assert something because you have the reality of seasonal seasons and locals that are older and they have their own propensities. And then we have 50 guests on site. So how to how to kind of build a matrix of your personal time, like what you can actually achieve staffing personal time. So we're trying to do a lot, but it's, yeah, it's hard on Pender because you, I mean, you can go and source the best ingredients in the world. Uh, but can you charge enough for it? And are you going to get enough customers to kind of make that all work? The matrix of that. Uh, so I think what we do now is we pare it all down. So we have, dinner two nights a week which we can achieve more so johnny works prep mostly for a couple of days and then we do dinner together i bake five days a week so we can kind of deliver certain components and kind of do them well because the focus is always on quality and ingredients because to me it's all about that humans are driven by emotion so your food has to like it has to have the right texture it has to have the right sort of emotional provocation to the consumer, the person eating it has to provoke them in some way. It can't just be good. It can't just be okay. It can't just be a butter chicken that tastes like butter chicken and it's fine. Because again, that's not how I was brought up, right? Like you're always trying to push the envelope a little bit, try to do something a little better, but it's all based on service. So you kind of always want to make sure your guests are provoked and nurtured. What do you receive from providing service to people? Like, what is it that keeps you going down that path? Because we talked about this before we started the interview, and it was very interesting to hear about how important delivering service is. But what kind of value do you receive in return from providing a lot of service to people? I think as a business concept person, like somebody that creates something, I think manifesting it in a macro level. So you're kind of, like you have an idea and you're trying to make it come to fruition. I think there's, I think if you look at that, that's kind of the, like doing deals. So if I, you know, if you tell me, go get me a location and I start it and I finish it, I think the manifestation of, of the concept and having people being busy and being successful, I think that's part of it at a macro level. So you're like the idea that you organically create something and you're manifesting it and people are relating to it. And then there's the, you know, you're overlapping that with survival. <laughs> there's kind of that, there's a thing where you have to pare it down eventually because you just can't keep delivering everything to everybody. 
So I think doing deals or completing or manifesting, I think is a big part of self-worth, not ego so much as, as uh, I don't know how to, it's different than ego. So service mentality to me is different than ego. It's more like you want people to be satisfied versus you want people to acknowledge how great you are. So it's not about that. It's more about like your your achievement or your your self-worth is based on your manifestation or your like the overall concept. So it's more self-sacrifice to maintain or to achieve a goal. I guess more like I'm willing to sacrifice my per- personal body in order to like get the outcome and the pastries out and and have people relate to it and buy it and like it. Yeah. Um so you're kind of taking one for the team in a way. And then there's a point where that just doesn't, it's not sustainable. But I think that's the affirmation versus ego. It's not so much an ego, but I mean, egos, humans are still driven by ego, right? So we're still, still an ego component to that. But, but it's more about like service is the way that I describe a service mentality versus because there's people that will say, oh, I won't do that because I'm not getting paid. So they'll just like back away and it's like, I'm I'm working 30 hours. This is all I'm doing. This is what I'm going to, I'm going to pare back because that's all you're paying me for Yeah. versus over delivering to the point where you're always going to have a job. You're going to get promoted. You're going to get like, there's a, there's a, there's a service mentality versus a take mentality or a sort of like a worker bee mentality. Right. So, totally. This is making a lot of sense to me. Actually, I'm hearing so many echoes in terms of how I'm perceiving this podcast more and more these days, because doing this podcast is a service to the community and service to people outside the community to listening. And, and um, I'm not getting paid to do this. Right. And it, but it makes me feel really good and uh, I want to provide this service because it it feeds me something by doing it. And the answer that you gave, I heard so many parallels of uh, of thoughts that I've been having through my mind about doing this podcast. So that that answer really resonates with me. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think in a karmatic universe, and you know the way the world works at a core level, at a human emotional level, I think is more like that. It's like people just kind of get too caught up in what in it for them i think social media is everything's kind of like cluttered and all about sort of dollars versus you know a a karmatic contribution to society to kind of raise the level of human consciousness versus like that should be for everybody's benefit not just for your benefit but it benefits you so if you're raising the level of human consciousness overall in your actions of service you know, that's for everybody's benefit, not just yours, right? So if you can kind of create something that people really adapt to and like, and it gives them a sense of place, that's a contribution beyond your own contribution, right? So it's, so there's a point where that becomes a service rather than, you know, ego or, or, or like a notch on your belt or <laughs> like there's, yeah. there has to be a greater purpose. And you always have to balance that to making sure you're not taken advantage of or you're or you can achieve it physically and not kill yourself. Um, so I don't know. There's- yeah. Constantly checking in, constantly, you know, like uh, reanalyzing and having perspective as to, you know, your your reasons and your output and and like looking at it from many different angles, being self-reflective. 
man, you can't, you can't get caught up like in a business like that. You can't, cause there's so many things to do that you just have to get from A to B. You can't get caught up too much in micro analyzing or like walking. You can't walk away from anything. It's just like you wake up in the morning and there's this stuff you got to do. Yeah. So, so it's less about you and more about the goal or the, or the entity that you've created, I guess. Fair. Well, thank you for waking up in the morning and coming over here. Uh, holy smokes, this has been really good. Thank you, Curtis. Before we end off, though, I always want to give the uh, the guests the opportunity to uh, share anything that uh, they may not have had the chance to. So is there anything that you didn't talk about in this that you wanted people to know? Any last uh, words that you want to add to anything? Not specifically. <laughs> 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 well, what what about for uh, 2023? Where, where where are things going for you for 2023? What are you looking forward towards? Yeah, I mean, I I guess you start to think being eight years, I guess, eight years, 2000, January 1st, 2015. So, yeah, I don't know. I think this year is going to be similar. I think tourism patterns are going to go back to normal now. People are tra- going to Mexico and Hawaii in the winter. So I think... The reality is inflation keeps coming up and, you know, I can't necessarily think that we're going to be, you know, 10 months solid, busy, 90% all the time. So got to look at the future. It's going to be a kind of an interesting couple of years, I think. And again, you know, the restaurant is kind of (laughs) the biggest subjective. I think we've got a formula and a platform now that can kind of work with Johnny and Ava and keeping it simple. I think that's probably the most subjective thing going forward. I think the lodging part of it, I think everybody's going to still want to come and hang out with a campfire. I think what we our deliverable is unique enough. I don't think it's going to be duplicated that easily in it's like as a big resort. I think, you know, you can do one in your backyard, but I don't think anybody can kind of do the lack of density kind of spread out private kind of sites that we've achieved. I think so. So I don't think we're going to like crash and burn. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully that we can maintain that. And I think we're pretty congruent with, you know, like pender and nature and forest and trees and fresh air. And I think that's, we're kind of really dialed into that whole, like I think woods on pender having that as part of the name is appropriate. I think it fits well with, we're surrounded by a hundred acres of forest where we are next to a park. It's all trees. If you look at an aerial, (laughs) I think that's something that people want. I think that decompressing, healing, matriarchal vortex or whatever it is that we deliver, I think as long as we don't completely screw it up, (laughs) I think we'll probably still be a sustainable business, but. Yeah. And giving people an opportunity to spend time uh, in the forest, in the woods. And authentic. To me, authenticity is really important. I think any business should be authentically what they set out to do or what they're perceived to be i can't like to be at my achilles is lack of authenticity i can't stand people <laughs> that are like incongruent or, or like put on airs about what they do and they're not authentic with it whatever you do like whether you're a a diner or fine dining just be authentic be honest about what you what you're doing yeah yeah, because that comes out. We can uh, we can feel it. We can sense it from uh, from people that uh, lack of authenticity, and it uh, doesn't really feel good <laughs> to, to be around, right? And I think yeah. that's hopefully what we do is an authentic experience. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Curtis. I really appreciate this. Cool.
All right. Well, thanks to Curtis for doing that interview. And that was a lot of fun to get to do that with Curtis. These interviews are really enjoyable for me. That was the most time I've spent with Curtis for sure. And we had a great chat beforehand, as I normally do with guests. And uh, what a pleasure. What a pleasure it was to get to know Curtis better. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And thank you for sticking around to the end of this podcast. And thank you for listening to these interviews. If people did not listen, I surely would not do these. But it sounds like more and more people are catching on to the podcast and going into the back catalog, which there are a lot of older interviews to listen to. So if you enjoyed this one and you want to hear some more, have a little scroll through the podcast page. You'll see that there are many interviews from the past and there's a lot of good ones in there. So please enjoy those. I want to say thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music for this podcast, and until next time.